again, I will say good morning, everyone. And if you're visiting with us, a very special, warm welcome. Uh, I trust you've been blessed as we have worshipped the Lord together. This morning, we're returning to uh, the Psalm, a Psalm of David, Psalm 139. And last uh, week, we read together the first 12 verses of that Psalm. And we saw David place himself under God's microscope, as it were. Uh, But conversely, as David asked uh, God to search him, the awesome greatness of the one who scrutinizes him becomes the focus of his thoughts and leads him out uh, to burst out in praise. And the two simple headings that we used last week were these. First of all, God knows me. Speaks of God's omniscience. He knows everything about me. Secondly, God sees me, reminds me of God's omnipresence. No matter where I go, he is there. And we drew out some of the applications that are relevant to us today. So this morning I want us to travel with the psalmist as he further considers the greatness of God as it relates to him personally. So if you've got your Bible there, please turn to Psalm 139. And we're going to break in at verse 15, and we're going to read right down to the end there. Sorry, verse 13, verse 13. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And we know, of course, that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The first heading I'm going to use this morning for these verses from verse 13 right down to 18 is very simple. God is my creator. So we've had God knows me, God sees me, and now we have God is my creator. And David's thoughts turn now to God's unbelievable power and skill, his omnipotence, if you like. So let's just drop down through the chapter starting At verse 13 there. You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
And what David is saying is that no conception is accidental. God is himself involved. In a tiny dot, all the future characteristics of a child are programmed. Skin and hair, eye color, the shape of the face, all the physical features, the sex of the child, whether male or female. God is involved personally with each one. Trillions of cells, miles of nerve fibers and blood vessels, vital organs, joints, muscles, ligaments, and a brain. God created us with the ability to hear, to smell, to taste, to touch, and see. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one of us is unique. Man can, and it's an issue of of some concern, take the early form of life and and tinker with it to ensure that a baby conforms to desired criteria. But they cannot give the essential spark of life. Only God can do that. Man can also prolong life with medical intervention, and we are enormously grateful, of course, for the advances, advances in medicine that allow us to live longer, healthier lives. But there is a fixed limit. Man cannot restore life once it is gone. Only God can. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I think that's a very apt term, isn't it? Think how muscles and sinews, nerves, blood vessels are all woven together around the bone structure of the body. And that Hebrew term, uh, knit, is only ever used when referred to how the human body is put together. What skill and care God used to create you and me. What dignity he has bestowed upon us. We're not some mass-produced item from a factory. We didn't come off a production line. God crafted each and every one of us. But more than that, David says, you created my innermost being. Not just the human's visible parts, but our mental abilities, our personality traits, our conscience, and a never-dying soul. I'm reminded, um, as I read this psalm of of Genesis 2, verse 7, only God can take that inanimate dust of the ground and breathe life into it. And we read that man became a living being. As uh, as David considers all Uh, that God has done, he can only do this one thing. He can only praise God. What a great God we have. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And then in verse 15, he retraces his steps as he marvels again at the time when his body was formed in his mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. And this, of course, pictures God's uh, intimate knowledge of every unborn child in the womb. God was doing scans and ultrasounds long before we ever thought of it. God knows every detail. I was woven together, says David, 
in the depths of the earth. Now, of course, that reference to the depths of the earth is not to be taken literally. Rather, it is simply a poetic reference to the development of the child in the womb before a child sees the light of day, before any mother sets eyes on her child. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Once again, this speaks to us of the the foreknowledge and the power of our God. God is my creator, says David. But not only is he sovereign over us before our birth, he is sovereign over us during every day of our lives. And he is sovereign at the end of our earthly lives. From the beginning to the end. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. As believers, of course, we know there is a a Lamb's book of life that lists in heaven that records the redeemed of Christ. But there's another book that records all our allotted days. And here is the wonderful thing. The marvel of it is this. The number of our days was written in this book before our birth. You know, if you visit any graveyard, you'll find the record engraved in stone of, the, of many individuals of their date of of birth, the length of their life, and the date of their death. But God records all those details before we were born, not after we die. And again, David's praise rings out. How precious, he says, how amazing to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. How indescribably great is our God's part over every aspect of our lives and this knowledge of us, the care that he expends on us. His thoughts about you and I are so detailed and so numerous that they're like grains of sand upon the vast seashore. I'm sure you've lain on the beach and lifted a handful of sand and just let it trickle through your hands. Hundreds and thousands of grains in one handful. Innumerable beyond our ability to compute. Any attempt to calculate the total of them leads to exhausted sleep. And says David, when I awake, I'm still with you. Some of the commentators suggest that this sleep actually refers to death and the conviction that David had that after the sleep of death, he would awake in the presence of his God. And of course, that is indeed the sure and steadfast hope of every believer. Either way, God's presence is assured upon awakening. God is my creator. So what application to our lives can we make from these verses? Last week, I asked you to imagine two columns, two separate columns. One was headed comfort and the other challenge. The psalmist's thoughts of God's omniscience and omnipresence could either bring comfort or challenge. So this week, let's continue to use those two imaginary columns as we consider his thoughts on God's omniscience in these verses between 13 and 17. First of all, comfort. People sometimes ask, and it's usually whenever they're facing some personal crisis or there's a natural disaster in the world. What's life all about? What's the point in it all? 
We're born, we live, we die, and the world keeps on turning. What's it all about? What purpose is there to life? And you remember, if you you read the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes, the conclusion that the teacher comes to, he says, life is meaningless. And that word in Hebrew expresses his deep confusion about life. Wisdom is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. Wisdom, folly, toil and riches, all meaningless. And in a fallen world, life is often perplexing and confusing. But the answer to the perplexities of life is to find a way back to God as the creator of everything. And praise God, Jesus has made that way by dying for our sins and becoming our mediator. And those who have accepted him as saviour, he has made children of the living God with the sure and steadfast hope of eternity in the presence of this amazing God that David brings before us in this psalm. We shall live with him and we shall reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth. Life in this broken world is not the end. God has revealed his plans for us through Jesus. Only through him do we make sense of our lives and our destiny. How exciting is the future that lies ahead for every born-again believer? How utterly depressing it must be to be an atheist. God designed us with purpose and determined our days to serve him and glorify him. What comfort we can draw from that thought. But let's turn to the challenge column, if you like. Because there are challenges in these verses too. And I want to suggest two of them to you this morning. First of all, there's the challenge to trust him. To trust him. We worry, don't we? Cost of living crisis. Our health, old age, what about my exams, my job, my mortgage? The list goes on and on and on. We worry about living and we worry about dying. And I'm a worrier, I must admit, especially at two o'clock in the morning. And I have to preach Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25 to myself. You know the, the passage, don't you? Jesus asked, what's the point in worrying? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The challenge is to trust him with it all. But we find if we do trust him, that comfort flows to us in our need. Jesus said, your heavenly father knows you need them. He knows. That was what we looked at last week. God knows. God knows what I need. God knows what I need every day in every circumstance. And each and every one of those days is written in his book. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single R to that figure written in his book? David says, all the days ordained for me are written in your book. He's got it. He's got it under control. We used to sing, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And sometimes that's easier said than done, I know. 
And I know there are people here in the thick of things, all sorts of stuff right now. Trust him is the challenge. He knows, he sees, he's my creator. He made me, says David. Second challenge. Those verses present a very real challenge for us as Christians to take a stand on the issues of abortion and the euthanasia. The sixth commandment teaches clearly, you shall not murder, intentionally taking human life, which is in the image of God, is evil. When it comes to abortion, the big question is whether or not the fetus is a human being in the image of God. And those verses that we have read together this morning, between 13 and 15, are among the clearest biblical statements on this question. You'll note that even in the earliest stages of life as an embryo or a fetus, David uses personal pronouns. I, my, me. The Bible tells us unmistakably that human personality exists before our birth. How should we view the unborn? They are distinct persons that God knows and loves and we should stand resolutely opposed to abortion. There's also a constant push to legalize euthanasia and assisted suicide. The suggested criteria for determining whether someone can be legally assisted to take their lives are ever-widening. In Canada, for instance, a recent paper on bioethics suggested that poverty-justified euthanasia should be available to those in unjust social circumstances. So the homeless and destitute could be offered this as a solution to their problems. In the Netherlands, parents can legally euthanize terminally ill children under the age of 12. This is the shocking reality of the world that we live in today. Psalm 139 tells us that our significance and so the claim to protection against abortion and euthanasia derives not from our quality of life or our gifts and abilities, but from our status as being formed in God's image. The challenge for us is to stand against the tide in these matters, to be informed, to make our opposition clear and not simply turn a blind eye. We can't all campaign directly against these things, but we have a responsibility to pray. We're also indebted to the work of the Christian Institute in these matters, and we have a duty to support them in what they do. We can give financially towards their work. We can sign the petitions and join the campaign against the abortion laws in Northern Ireland, the most liberal in the UK. We can vote for politicians who take a stand on these issues. We are made in God's image. We live on account of God's eternal purpose. We breathe, walk, work, sleep by God's sustaining grace. We enjoy his presence with us. We have a future to look forward to. God is behind all this. God's omnipotence 
demonstrated as our creator, should shape our understanding of this world and our place in it. But then we come to those verses 19 to 22. And if you're familiar with this psalm, you'll know that the first 18 verses are fairly comfortable reading. And then you come to this last section from 19 down. And it's as if David loses the plot. The red mist descends. He implores God to stir himself into action against his foes. And it's all very hot and heavy indeed. Slay the wicked, he says. Do not I hate those who hate you. I abhor them. I have nothing but hatred for them. And often people don't know what to do with these verses and they find them so uh, unchristian that they ignore them and simply stop reading at verse 18. However, that is very unsatisfactory and I feel that we must consider them in conjunction with the rest of the psalm. I think they give us an important insight into the context of this psalm. There are a number of these uh, imprecatory psalms, as they're known, as we need to refer to a couple of them to, to help us give a handle on what's happening here in Psalm 139. If you read the backcloth to this period of time in 2 Samuel, you find that, that David is, is living in a world of increasingly wicked, bloodthirsty men who are attempting to take his life and who continually speak evil against the Lord. Men who misuse God's name in all manner of ways and are full of wickedness. David is announcing the threats that he faces and calling God to action. Our heading so far in this psalm has been God knows me, God sees me, God is my creator, and now the last one, God is my king. And three points to make. It's important to note that David is not seeking personal vengeance. You'll remember David's restraint when he had the opportunity to slay Saul in the cave. If you read the story, you'll find that Saul, who was pursuing David relentlessly, hunting him like a, a partridge on the mountains, was now completely vulnerable. David could have been rid of his tormentor once and for all. Not only that, but the crown was there for his taking. How great the temptation must have been to take things into his own hands. Surely, he must have reasoned, God has given him into my hands that I might slay him. But instead, he left the matter of vengeance with the Lord. So what about this hatred? Are we not told to love our enemies? Do not I hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred against them. I count them my enemies. The hatred David speaks about is not personal vengeance. Rather, it is a moral abhorrence, disgust, revulsion, a total rejection of those who hate God. Which is not the same as saying, hate the sin and love the sinner. Which is good advice, but it's not the whole story. There is a kind of hate for the sinner. Those who are, are morally corrupt and completely hostile to God that can exist in tandem with pity and the desire for their salvation. Think of those who have 
blood, the blood of thousands of innocents upon their hands. Those who do unspeakable things to God's people. Child molesters who commit the vilest offenses. Those who delight in their wickedness. It seems completely legitimate for David to hate those who hate you. Secondly, David is speaking as God's anointed. We often think of David as the shepherd boy, and indeed that is how he often depicts himself in the Psalms. But it is equally true that he was God's anointed servant. He points us to Jesus, to Jesus as God's anointed, the coming perfect servant that we've thought about this morning, David's greater son. Indeed, it seems to me that Paul read, read these Psalms as being the very words of Christ himself. Psalm 69 is, is seen as one of the most outspoken of these Psalms. And yet verse 9 is quoted directly in Romans 15 verse 3 as being spoken by Jesus himself. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The implication is is clear. David spoke these words as God's inspired, anointed king, prefiguring the coming king and Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has the absolute right to pronounce judgment on his enemies. And Jesus himself quoted Psalm 69, verse 4, in John 15, 25. They hated me without reason. Psalm 69, verse 9, is applied to Jesus by the disciples in John chapter 2 when he drove the traitors out of the temple. Zeal for the Lord has eaten me up. Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me gall for my food. And that corresponds, of course, with Matthew 27 and 34. And this is the same psalm that in verse 24 says, Pour out your wrath upon them. Let your face, fierce anger overtake them. They're not exactly mealy-mouthed words, are they? Furthermore, Paul quotes the very strong words of Psalm 69, verses 22 to 23 in Romans as being the inspired Old Testament scripture. Certainly, not something to be embarrassed about uh, as some sort of a bad-tempered rant. Thirdly, rarely, if ever, does the psalmist resort to calling down God's wrath on sinful men without reaching out first in love to his enemies. For example, Psalm 35, they repay me evil for good and leave my soul forlorn. Yet while they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humble myself with fasting. Or Psalm 109, with words of hatred they surrounded me, they attacked me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accused me. They repay my evil, my, me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. The wickedness in view has resisted all overtures of love and concern. And God always gives the opportunity for repentance and throws open his arms to the prodigal. But there does come a time when he will say, no more. The day of opportunity is over and justice will fall. We've been with Jeff in the book of Exodus and saw how Pharaoh witnessed God's power up close and personal. 
but repeatedly and deliberately chose to ignore the evidence and the appeals of God. Instead, he repeatedly hardened his heart, went back on his word. After the sixth plague, God acted in judgment. Finally, some applications, very brief ones, four of them. It's not for us to extract vengeance. We are not to take the opportunity to get even when it arises. Whether the person is a Christian or not. I know of Christians who have become entirely embittered because of some wrong that has been done to them. Maybe years ago. And they felt that they haven't received justice. But it's just so liberating to leave it in God's hands and move on. Secondly, we can become anesthetized to sin. As Christian standards drop away in society and mankind goes out of its way to deny his existence or any right he has to expect reverence or respect, we come to accept what God finds unacceptable. We turn a blind eye, shrug our shoulders and say, it's the way of the world. We should rather be offended and outraged as David was for God's great name. Thirdly, we are being disingenuous to the gospel if we do not preach judgment to come. This is the day of grace. Thanks be to God. A day of opportunity to receive Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation full and free. But it is a limited offer that could expire at any moment. Judgment is coming. Lastly, David was very aware of the danger of wrong motivation. He not only examined his heart himself, but he asked God to examine it for him. We need to be very careful of using language like David used in this instance. We can convince ourselves very easily that our condemnation is purely because of the offence caused to our God by the sin we observe. But the truth can often be more self-serving. We can take a perverse delight in seeing someone getting their just desserts. There can be a large element of score settling, a desire for revenge upon those who have wronged us as we see it. Motivation can be such a, a wise thing to consider before we confront a fellow believer about some fault that we see or injury that we feel. To ask the Lord to reveal to us our true motivation, as David does here, to submit to his microscope and ask for the results of his inquiry. I know from personal experience that often my brother's fault becomes inconsequential when I become more aware of my own motivation. It's only after acknowledging that God knows me, that God sees me, that God is my creator, that David can call upon his king's wrath to fall on his enemies. So I'm going to close this morning in the same way as I did last week, by reading the last words of this wonderful psalm and leaving them with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be 
any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.